where we usually have uh, someone else that reads the scripture. And uh, Jolene read it last night and did a great job. Um, it takes about 19 minutes to read all this. And um, I think that last song was really for whoever's going to read the scripture because of all the potential mispronunciations. This is God's holy, living, and active word. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble, marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic's pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal, royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethat, Edmatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the, the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the providences of King Ashuharas. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ashuharas commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, 
and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahaz Uerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and all the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the providences, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, and every, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the life-giving, abiding word of God. Please be seated and let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. Um, we're grateful for your spirit that gives us, um, that illuminates your word and gives us understanding. And God, we thank you that, um, that your word isn't simply just a um, disconnected uh, bunch of stories that tell us how to live but that um, all 66 books from the beginning to the end point to salvation uh, in Jesus Christ. And Esther's no exception. And so, God, I pray that um, as we embark on this journey through this um, um, crazy, wonderful book of Esther, God, that we would um, be in awe uh, that you are always at work, even when you don't seem like you're at work that you're always working in your people, and you're always bringing um, more people into your kingdom. So God, I'm a beggar in need of grace this morning, and I just pray, uh, Spirit of God, that you would um, empower me to speak rightly of your word and to um, remind us of your greatness and your glory um, for our good and for your glory. We love you, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, that was a mouthful. Um, Last night after Jolene read it, um, I actually um, encouraged everybody to like to give her applause because she did it flawlessly. It was amazing. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I haven't been up here in 10 weeks. I um, haven't had the opportunity to preach in 10 weeks. Uh, we had the PLI guys um, preach through Titus, and then we had the church planting guys uh, uh, preach through Jonah, and then of course we had the one service in the parking lot uh, where, we got, where we got to say goodbye to, or we had to say goodbye to uh, the Shuett family. Um, but I'm just jazzed to be back up here. And um, Esther's been on my heart for um, a year and a half. Um, it's something that I've been marinating in. I've been uh, thinking about uh, when we should preach it. And um, really wasn't sure. I was thinking about maybe uh, asking the pastors if we could do like a three-week just topical sermon series on uh, just the times that we're in right now. And uh, maybe there'll be time for that later. But in God's providence, Esther speaks really loud and really clear um, to um, the times that we're in right now. And so I'm excited about that. Um, really, if I could describe the book of Esther, it's, it's about God's um, hidden providence. Um, to um, uh, Hidden providence, just working out his, his, uh, his good will and purpose. Uh, the Bible, um, all of it, uh, is a story of salvation. Uh, the Old Testament scriptures are given to us to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's why we have the Old Testament. They testify to the big story of God saving his people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every little story in God's big story, including the book of Esther, is a part of and serves the big story. 
And I know that's obvious to many of us, but it's important to keep that in mind. Every Old Testament narrative shows us something of the character and nature of our covenant God. His holiness, His faithfulness, His wisdom, His providence, His justice. And Esther, in particular, tells us how God cares for and preserves and promises salvation for His people. The New Testament tells us that we are the people of God. So this is part of our story here today in 2020. All of this is done while God is not mentioned once in this book. Not Elohim, not Yahweh. Ten chapters in the Bible does not say God once. But even though he's not mentioned, we will see his faithfulness to save his people. Uh, by his hidden hand. We'll see it over and over again. How should we read this book? Let me give you a negative answer. We shouldn't look at this book to mainly find moral answers on how to live. There's a pervasive tendency um, in the church, Big C Church, to reduce Bible stories to their morals. And we need, to, we need to take a step back from that. We need to resist the temptation to offer moral judgments as the story is told. You see, these judgments may or may not be valid. But even if they are, they are unlikely to be the main point of the story unless the storyteller indicates his interest in these moral lessons. In Esther, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to make judgments on the response and behavior of the people in this story. Um, King Ashuharis, uh, Queen Vashti, Esther, Mordecai, Haman. And I want to encourage you not to go there. Just let the text speak. Esther, as I mentioned, is a very timely book. Like our world today, there's much that is wrong in the world in which Esther lived. The powers of the world seem to be in full control. God seemed to be hidden, and his people also are hidden and assimilated into the world that they didn't belong to. In the book of Esther, things don't always appear as they seem, though. In our world today, things aren't always as they appear either. When we don't clearly recognize the call on us, the call of God's people, and how it differs from the calling of the secular world that we live in, we get sucked into the world, the secular world. Our desires and appetites, good and bad, start to control us. In fact, they always control us. And these desires don't appear out of thin air. We all have them. We have good desires, good appetites. We have bad desires, bad appetites. Our desires are formed by things like a political party, a particular news channel, a certain author, a podcast that we listen to every week. Before I was following Jesus, I was following desires and, app and I had growing appetite that was often um, of this world and it was formed by the books I read. I read a lot of self-help books, how to think and grow rich type books. And I watched people and listened to people that I esteemed, and my desires and appetites were being formed by the world rather than being formed by Christ. We're all formed by innumerable explicit and implicit influences that range from our family that we grew up in, to our education, to media and politics. When God tells us that we're clay, it's not just a happy image that promises that he, the potter, has the power to shape us. He does. 
and he will as we submit ourselves to him. It means that we're moldable. And something is always forming and shaping us. Our culture tells stories that shape what we think is good and what might make us happy. And our hearts start conforming to those stories. It's important at the very beginning here to know and understand that the world that we live in, to understand the world and and know that it's shaping us for, for good or for bad. As Christians, we are exiles. This is not our home. We're living in a secular world that is not our home. In America, we live in a culture that is increasingly secular. And like it was in Esther's time, secularism is today's um, incontestable God, little g. And I fear that God's people today, you and I, are putting our hope in a country and in our world and in better rulers in this world rather than in a far country and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This secular world and, uh, and its best leaders and rulers can't save us and can't satisfy us. There's much anger and fighting in this country right now over political candidates and political parties and policies. Did anybody else notice that? Everything seems to be political. And everyone seems to be on edge, and the world is divided. Worst, Christ's church is divided. Christ's church is divided. Um, I believe that this is the case because we put our hope in and turn to politicians or a political party to protect us and save us and give us a life of liberty and freedom and happiness that we long for rather than looking to Christ for that. We live in a secular world that can't satisfy us and will only anger and disappoint us if we look to it to save us and satisfy us. So as we walk through Esther chapter 1, here's a promise. You're going to leave here wanting more. Um, Has anybody ever, like, binged on a TV series? Eight episodes, we've done that. Like, in the beginning of the pandemic, like, we knocked off, like, you know, eight, nine episodes of a couple of shows in, like, a Sunday afternoon, you know, in our jammies. Um, This is episode one. And, uh, and, there's, and, and I would encourage you to read ahead, uh, but we're going to be hitting this one week at a time, and you're going to want more after today, but we're going to just let it sit. And as we let it sit, I want to invite you to ask these four questions, and they'll be available to you after the service, and they'll also be posted on the website. And the, the first question is, is, are you being molded by the world or molded by Christ? Two, in whom or what are you trusting in? Three, are you banking more on the promises of politicians or God's promises? And number four, why are you so angry? And today we're going to see, <clears throat> we're, we're going to take a look at the, the secular world. That's what the author has in mind is he wants to paint a picture of the secular world. And we're going to see that the secular world is, number one, inescapable, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see, number two, that the secular world is inviting. It wants to mold us, verses 4 through 7. Number three, we're going to see that the secular world is inhumane, verses 8 through 11. And then number four, we're going to see that the secular world, particularly the power and control of the secular world, is an illusion, 
It's inescapable, it's inviting, it's inhumane, and it's an illusion. In verses 1 through 3, at the very beginning of the story, we're introduced to Ahaz Uaris. That's five syllables. I'm glad that we're not going to have to pronounce this uh, over and over again. That's his Hebrew name. His Greek name is Xerxes. And I'm going to be referring to him as Xerxes because it's easier to say. He, Xerxes, was the son of Darius, and he was a grandson of Cyrus the Great. He reigned 21 years from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. And he inherited this kingdom from his father that is massive and it's powerful. And we see this in the opening scene in verse 1 that he reigned over 127 providences from India to Ethiopia. The, the Persian Empire encompassed almost the entirety of the known world with the exception of Greece during this time. And I'm going to be referring to this empire as the world or the secular world as we go through this book. It says in verse 1 that he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Susa is the, is the city. It's where the people live. And, and the citadel is the fortress inside the city. Think of the White House or the Pentagon inside of, of, uh, of, of that area, of Washington, D.C. The events that are going to happen happened during the height of Xerxes' Persian Empire in its golden age of influence, wealth, and power. And if you were a member of the scattered people of God, the Jewish people then, or even were a part of a small number of them who had returned back to Jerusalem, which was included in the Persian Empire, you lived in this world empire, and you had no choice. You lived in it, and there was no escaping from it. So the first thing I want you to notice is that the world, the secular world then, and the secular world today is inescapable. You can't leave it. You're in it with all of its issues. Even if you turn down the social media noise, which I have two months now off of Facebook, whoop, whoop, that's, and my life is so much better for it, um, I still can't escape this secular world. Um, my goodness, like I'm, I'm on the next door app, like looking for a couch. And like I'm getting, like I, there's more political stuff on there than anywhere. Like what in the world is going on out there? Crazy. So this, this brings us, let's see here. So we're told that this story unfolds in the third year of Xerxes' reign, so in 483 B.C., where the scene unfolds with a great feast, which brings us to the second point, that the secular world is inviting. The feast for all the officials of the empire lasted 180 days, six months. We don't know exactly why it lasted that long, other than it tells us this, that all were before him, before Xerxes, while he showed out the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days. I don't know long, how long it would take you to show off your greatness. It would take me about 180 seconds, maybe. And then you could, like, argue with that. The book of Esther is rooted in the Bible. It's one of the 66 books of the canon. But it's also rooted in, in um, secular history that there is uh, much written about um, Xerxes in this time frame um, in, um, in, uh, in history. In fact, Herodias, the ancient historian, uh, describes this feast uh, in the same year. He describes a feast that happened in the same year, 483, most likely the same feast in which Xerxes was attempting to gather support to extend his rule westward and invade Greece. 
You see, Cyrus, his father, had been defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. This is from history. And Xerxes was committed to avenging their defeat. So the banquet was designed to impress the military and government, government officials and to rally them to his cause by invading Greece. The commentator, Karen Jobes, um, confirms this summary of events, and she says this. She says, The might and glory of the Persian Empire were at Xerxes' disposal in order to reward those who would remain loyal to his cause and obedient to his command. This description of the lavish banquet shows that Xerxes is a force to be reckoned with. So the, the world, uh, the secular world systems use people to gain their agenda. They use people. He had people there um, not to just bless them with his party, but to enlist them for his cause. And the secular world invites us in by luring us to the table with the promise of wealth and power and influence and freedom. But the secular world's table has underlying motives. It doesn't care about you or me personally. It cares about self-perpetuating itself, extending its influence, power, and control. I was just thinking about this. Maybe it's not a good example. I thought about this last night, is that um, we received a stimulus check. And, um, and it was like we spent it, bought a fridge. It was great. And I think um, that it was important. It's just a, just a comment. I think it was good, probably, for, to keep the economy going for them to issue that stimulus check. Um, but they didn't think of Dan Hardy when they sent that out. Like, here, like here's like Dan and Nancy. They could use a fridge. You want to bless them. No, it's to keep the machine going. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But the point is, is that the, that the secular world system doesn't care about you. Verse 5. After the 180 days was up, the six months, then he invited all the men who were in the citadel for seven days of feasting. And what I picture is, is that you know, for this six month of partying, there were people that were having to serve the drinks and serve the food and all that that were employees, and now he was having this after party for seven days for the, for the commoners who worked in the citadel. That's just my, my suspicion. But it was a, it was a seven-day party um, for um, other people, the commoners. Um, verses 6 and 7a, the author gives us a picture of the opulence of the palace, and it was over-the-top impressive. I think of rich, uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous. The king is treating and spoiling all who are there according, it says, according to his bounty or generosity. But again, his generosity has a catch. His, he's generous for a purpose. That all might admire and support him and his cause to expand his kingdom so that more people could bow down to him and be under his control. And at the end of verse 7, we see that he's willing to extend this generosity to those who support his agenda. But, but if but if you don't support his agenda, as we're going to see later in Esther, if you, don't, if you cross the king at all, he'll kill you. He'll hang you. So this king is swimming in power and wealth. And we should be in awe after being invited to this grandiose display of power and wealth. So the world is first inescapable, and it's inviting. Now the author pulls back the curtain a little bit further so we can see that the secular world is also inhumane. Verse 8. The secular world powers don't care for people, as I already mentioned, and they're driven by law and edicts void of relationship. 
We're told, that, we're told that the royal wine was lavished on the guests by his bounty and generosity, but then he lays down an edict for his guests to drink up and have a good time. I command you to enjoy this sermon. I command, and if you don't, you're banished from the church. That's how, that's how the secular world rules, is not with relationship, but with edicts and laws. And I'm, I'm a fan of laws, by the way, um, but... But it, the point is, is that the, the secular culture is not about relationship. In, everything, in, in reality, everything is controlled by Xerxes. Everything exists for his pleasure and to do with as he pleases. Even his generosity and edicts serve him in his secular kingdom. Verse 9, while the king is partying with his buddies, the queen is having her own feast with the women in the palace that... Who did the palace belong to? The author makes a point that the, that the palace belonged to Xerxes. There's no joint tenancy with rights of survivorship in that kingdom. That they had separate checkbooks. Um, and she was given a, you know, a small monthly stipend while he owned everything else. And you know what else belonged to Xerxes? Queen Vashti. And you know what else? The eunuchs belonged to Vashti or to, uh, to, uh, to Xerxes. And I want you to understand the barbaric and inhumane power of Xerxes. Some said that he had up to 500 eunuchs. And if you know what a eunuch is, it's a man that's been castrated. And as legend goes, that he would, he would, he would find these young men when they were teenagers. And he would bring them into the kingdom uh, as slaves and castrate them and put them in charge of the concubines, the women, so he wouldn't have to worry about any competition. And these young men would never be able to uh, procreate um, or get married. That is the, uh, the, the height of inhumanity. The secular world is inhumane. In verse 10, we see that on the seventh day, the king was merry with wine. That's code for he's drunk. And he was already intoxicated with praise and admiration of his riches and glory. Now he's intoxicated with wine. And being intoxicated with wine, in verse 11, he commanded the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. He summoned the queen for one purpose, and that's to show off his prized possession. And some commentators say that uh, when bring her with her crown actually meant that I want you to bring her with only her crown so that I can show her off. At the very least, like the opulent decor of the palace, she was another beautiful possession that he wanted to show off and impress the men at the feast so that they would give in to his beckoning. In the secular world, people are a means to an end. In the extreme of the Persian secular world, everything and everybody belonged to the king for his beckoning and his pleasure. The secular world is inhumane and sees people not as fellow image bearers, but as a means to satisfy and accomplish their desires. So the secular world is inescapable. It's inviting. It's inhumane. And now we're going to see that it's an illusion. It's really a mirage. At the end of the six-month feast where the all-powerful Xerxes showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness, we're shown that he's not really in control at all. He's not in control of himself, and he's certainly not in control of his wife. 
The first 11 verses and all the markers of power and wealth lead us to believe that we're about to read a story about the invincible power of the empire of the world. But as we're going to see here, it's not as it looks under the veneer. The second the world is a sham. It's no more than a dazzling hologram. All the top-down power, laws, threats, and control can't bend the human will. The only thing that can bend the human will is a transformation, a regeneration, a new birth by believing in Jesus Christ. You see, all the edicts and the laws from top down can't change a country. It can't change a world. Not to say that we shouldn't have good laws and good policies and good politicians. But it is a sham and an illusion to think that we can change the direction of humanity by edicts and laws and bend the will of humanity. What this world needs is more proclamation of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sins. And what we need is for me and you to repent and for the church to turn. And then see many other people, because of our witness, start jumping in the ark of salvation with us. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's demand, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The king who ruled 127 providences from Ethiopia to India commands one woman. And she says no. Christopher Ashe says this. He says, it must have been an awkward moment for the seven eunuchs, returning with no queen, Awkwardly whispering in the king's ear as the murmuring in the crowd and the people began to tweet. Hashtag, Vashti said no. There's Bible studies all over the place on Esther. Many of you ladies have chances already have gone through an Esther Bible study. And the feminists want to cheer Vashti for her courage to stand up to the king's sexual exploits. And the fundamentalists, fundamentalists want to boo her for not submitting to her husband. Before we do either, we need to ask what clues the author gives us to either boo or to cheer. The answer is none. He's not interested in encouraging us to have an opinion as to how she should have acted. The author is painting a portrait of power in a secular world. But definitive Infinite and supreme power in this secular world is an illusion. There's only one who has definitive, infinite, and supreme power. And by the way, he's on his throne. And it's actually a little funny and ironic that the ruler of the world can't even control his own wife. His power is not all sufficient after all. The world empire has great power to lay down edicts, amass great wealth, and hold impressive campaigns, but it cannot, once again, bend a human will. The king, the ruler of the modern world for the first time, but not the last, does not know what to do. Burning with anger and unbelief that the queen would refuse him, he turns from the seven eunuchs, and he turns to his seven wise men who understood the times to give him advice. 
the problem with this king, the problem with all secular rulers, is that he can't make up his mind. And he's advised by men who may know the times, but they're more interested in pleasing the king and keeping their position than they are giving sound advice. And the response of the counselors is filled with more ironic humor. Verse 16. First, they exposed the corruption of power that existed already in Persia and the self-serving nature of their law by making themselves the victims and Vashti the perpetrator because she wronged men everywhere. Verse 17. They make her crime a matter of empire-wide significance. It will destabilize the entire empire because women will look at their husbands with contempt. Give me a break. Into verse 17 and 18, the very thing that they feared, that all women would hear of this, that Vashti stood up to her husband. They ensure that everybody will hear about it by sending out a decree in every language to every province. They inadvertently advertised the drama between Vashti and Xerxes like a sensationalized blog post. It went viral, and I'm sure everybody was reposting on their social media platform. Hashtag Vashti said no. In verse 19, the humor contends, the very thing that Vashti refused to do, come before the king, is what they made illegal for her to do, come before the king. In verse 20, we see the foolishness of the edict, that all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. At face value, that sounds okay, but it's not. As if true respect and honor and especially love, which they don't seem to care about, would be achieved by position or power or law or force rather than what? Relationship. In verse 21, this advice pleases the king and the princes. Of course it does. It gives them more control and power and position now over all the women. Xerxes rules by what pleases him rather than by what pleases those under his rule. Verse 22, they say every man should be master in his own house. Or in today's idiom, every man's home is his castle. The power and control of the secular world that Esther lived in and we live in today is certainly an illusion. So how should we respond to the reality that the secular world we live in is inescapable, it's inviting, it's inhumane, and its power and control is an illusion. Let me give you a few thoughts. Recognizing that the secular world is inescapable is the first thing, is actually to recognize it, that you can't escape. You can shut it all off. You can put your head in the hole. But we still live in a secular world. This is not our home. You can't run from it completely. You can't isolate yourself from it. We can't escape the drama, the pain, the inconvenience, and our lack of being in control. That's a reality. People, politicians, and policies are going to disappoint you. You can't escape that reality. But you can experience the peace and hope and joy of this upside-down world and the King of Kings who is on His throne by resting in Him. 
Jesus in chapter 4, verse, four, verse 27 said this, My peace I live to you, my, I give to you. Let me say it again. Peace I leave with you. My peace, he says, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Number two, we need to recognize that the secular world is inviting. It wants to mold us. It wants to shape us. The secular world is consistently inviting you to the table of wealth and comfort and control where we're molded to, and we're molded to lust after the world and to conform to the, what the world says uh, that we need to be happy and content in the things of the world. Instead, Christian, enjoy the riches that you have in Jesus Christ. You were poor, but now you're rich. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians verse 8. For now you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had it all. Yet for your sake, he gave it all up. He became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased by the things of this world. We need to recognize, number three, that the secular world is inhumane. The secular world will use and abuse the weak and oppressed. The secular world doesn't care about you and I as individuals. It cares about you as a working, taxpaying, voting part of the system. The King of Kings doesn't use you. He died for you. He died so that you could enjoy a relationship with Him and have an eternal seat at His table. Jesus is not inhumane. He became humane. And lived the perfect life. And died the sacrificial death. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, for your sake, he, the God made him, Jesus, God, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we, every tongue, tribe, and nation might become the righteousness of God. And number four, we need to recognize that this secular world is an illusion. Things don't always appear as they seem which is one of the themes of Esther, the empire. The secular world is a glittering hologram. Everything that it offers you is an illusion. It won't last. It won't, it'll end with a thud. It won't actually bring lasting joy and peace and comfort. It will for a little while. Instead of chasing after this illusion, find peace in the one who holds it all together. And let me finish up with Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Let's pray. God, we bless you. God, we thank you that, um, Lord Jesus, that you became um, visible, that you took on flesh, that you dwelt among us, that you came and were tempted in every way as we are, yet you did not sin. And God, I thank you that, Lord Jesus, that you lived a perfect life that so that you could go to the cross as the unblemished lamb. And that you could be a right sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. And I thank you that you did all of us, all of this, to bring us into a relationship with you. Because you loved us before the foundation of the world. And God, we know that you created this world, not as a secular world, but as a... Um, as a uh, Edenic world, a, a picture of heaven. But it was our sin that ruined it. It was our sin that started the trajectory of this world being a secular world. And God, our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is not in policies. We thank you that we live in a country that has laws and has politics and has a constitution. But God, would you help us in this confusing time to think rightly and to place our hope in the right place and to find joy and peace daily in knowing that even when it seems like you're hidden, even when we're wringing our hands and saying, God, if, the, if this particular politician doesn't get in office, or this particular Supreme Court nominee isn't, um, isn't put there. God, we're doomed. God, we're not doomed. We're your people. And you will bring us all the way home. And God, would you help this church be one that proclamation, that proclaims salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And God, I thank you that you're patient with us. I thank you that you forbear with us. I thank you that you care and see us in our pain and our trials and that you don't ever walk away and throw up your hands when we're anxious, but you meet us right where we're at. And God, we need you. We need you every hour and every day. And we thank you, God, that you, um, yeah, I could just go on and on. We just praise and worship you. We love you so much. And we pray all these things in the powerful and sovereign name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand.